This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Morning. I was just talking to Bob and asking him what I was supposed to preach about. Yeah, he, he told me, but I've never heard of it. Do you have your Bibles with you? Bob has it memorized. He doesn't have to bring one. Uh, turn to Philippians, if you will. Philippians chapter 1. Let me ask you, have you ever had that um, seeking feeling like you wish you would have listened in class one day? <laughs> yeah, no. Marvin, no. Marvin says, Marvin can't remember school. Um, I had that. Uh, I had a wake-up call. It, it was in microbiology. I really didn't like that that much. I don't know if you've ever taken microbiology. I mean, if you don't have anything else to do, I guess you can, but I had to. And uh, the genius and species of all these little bugs, and I thought, oh, this is worthless. I'll never use this. Don't ever say that. <laughs> I spent the next 36 years playing what we call bugs and drugs, and it was nasty. Okay, I had to relearn all that stuff. And I wished I'd paid attention more. Um, but the other things that you wish you'd paid attention, and is it just me or do you wish that they would have taught you in school how to unclog a sink? <laughs> or change a doorknob? Or change a tire? I'm of the opinion that everybody, once in their lifetime, is going to be put in a position that they might have to swim. Think about it. But we don't teach that, do we? There are some things that, that we don't. But I will have to say that sometimes we don't pay attention when we should. And in fact, it goes off to other people, too. Have you ever run into those people that you wish they would have paid attention? Okay. This is really common in a chart. I'll just, in a, in a patient's chart. And I'll, I'll show you here if it works. There. <laughs> Commas are important, okay? I'm just telling you. I don't know how many times. It, and it, when you're reading the chart, you're just buzzing through there and you don't think about it. But when you slow down and you're thinking the diagnosis was what? <laughs> well, that's sad. I'm not able to eat diarrhea either, but I don't know what the cure is. Other than don't eat diarrhea, but commas are important, okay? Or maybe you have an automobile that you, you, you don't have a lot of money in it, you know what I'm saying? But it runs, and you have a little fender bender or what have you, and you take it to the body shop and say, I just don't want you to spend a lot of money on it. I just want you to fix it. It's paid for. It runs. I just need for you to make it drivable or what have you. And you'd wish they would have paid attention in auto body shop, because that's what you got back. <laughs> First of all, you never take your car to an auto body shop called Carpenter Brothers. <laughs> or Blankenship and Son. Okay? <laughs> Fixed it. But then there's the opposite. Have you ever noticed people that they never lose a detail? I call them overachievers. You know what I'm saying? 
And it's like, where did you learn to do that? What class did you take that I missed? And then you get these people. <laughs> really, can you imagine parking your car and someone calls 911 or 911? I haven't found 11 on that button yet, but 911. And they said, there's a truck turned over. Uh, I don't think it is. I don't know. But this guy's like, you either have too much time or too much money. It's like, that's nuts. And then you have other people that you go to a car show and they say, well, park your car, pull it in over there or back it in over there, whatever. I don't know which. It's, who does that stuff? Really? I just, these people pay way too much. I think they're demented. Okay, that's just me. But either way, I want you to understand that paying attention if you do or you don't, has a payday, all right? And I want you to stick that in the back of your mind as we go through this scripture today because remembering, paying attention, has a payday. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that uh, you've gifted us with your word, uh, that you speak to us. Father, that you encourage us pray today that as we go through this scripture that we would be encouraged. And uh, God, that we would leave here changed people. We'd ask that favor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We know about uh, Philippi. Anything? Here's one of these history lessons that I slept through. Originally, uh, Philippi was a town in uh, ancient Greece that was uh, called... Uh, Crinides, okay, and Crinides was a, it was just a town, that's all it was, it was just a little old town, but the thing that was unique about Crinides was that they had flowing springs, fresh springs, and they mined gold, uh, but it was just a little town, and the reality was is that because of what they mined, uh, people had this tendency to want to take over the town because what they wanted out of it was the gold. And they found themselves being faced by a group of people called the Thracians, and they needed protection. And they went to one man in particular to get that protection. And uh, the guy's name was Philip of Macedon, or Philip of, of Macedonia. And do you know who that is? I had to look this up. Uh, Philip of Macedonia was the father of Alexander the Great. Okay, And so Philip of Macedonia protected the town. He built walls around this town, and he fortified it. And out of thankfulness, they renamed the town Philippi. So there's where the name came from. And under Alexander the Great, uh, his dad's town flourished. Okay? Uh, and uh, because of the gold and all of that, and Alexander included that in the Greek Empire. And so, but by New Testament times, it was under Roman rule and had a very diverse population, mostly Gentile, Greeks, Romans, those type things. But do you remember these guys? Oops, well, here's, uh, by the way, here's Philippi. You can see it up there. This is Paul's journey up to Philippi from Troas. We'll talk about that in a minute. But do you remember these guys? I apologize for the black and white because in this day and time they didn't have color, okay? 
So when this picture was taken, uh, it was just black and white, and I apologize for that. But do you remember Brutus and Cassius? These were the guys that led a rebellion against Caesar, okay, against Caesar Augustus. And what happened was that they murdered him. And this rebellion that was going on uh, was kind of continuing. The reason why is because Caesar claimed deity. And Brutus says, mm-mm. And uh, so the empire was being split. He killed him. He and a guy named Cassius uh, planned all this. Well, anyway, as the rebellion went on, uh, Brutus and Cassius, uh, they, they, they mounted up these big uh, forces. But uh, there was two other guys that, eh, there's a dark history afterwards, but named Octavian and Mark Antony, J-Lo's former husband. No, that was Anthony. Anthony, Anthony, Anthony. Anyway, these guys decided, uh, no, the Caesars will stand. And so there was this huge battle. In fact, there were two battles, and you can read about it. It's an interesting battle. But the reality was that they won and they, de- they defeated the rebellion that had started against the Caesars in Rome. Guess where the battle took place? Philippi. Now that seems like, okay, well that was a coincidence, nice call, Kim. But what happened after that? The reality was that the Roman Empire then increased and this became a Roman colony. When it became a Roman colony, Do you know what the Romans did then? They built roads to it. And all of a sudden, the Roman roads began to spread the gospel. Do you see it? There is a rich history in Philippi and the gospel. And so as they moved on, this town flourished. It became what was known as Little Rome. And then, if you'll realize, let's go back and see if we have the map here. Again, you'll remember now how Paul got there. He was in Troas. And up here in the middle of the screen, do you see Troas? And he was wanting to go to Asia to encourage the churches in Asia from, or Asian Minor, from the first missionary trip. But you remember what happened in Acts 16 that uh, he had this vision of a man from Macedonia saying what? Do you remember? Come help us. And so he set sail across the Aegean Sea there, and he went to Philippi, okay? And this, actually, he planted the first church uh, on his second missionary journey. This was the first church, Christian church, that was planted. Uh, And the reason that we know that the majority of of, uh, the people that lived in Philippi were Gentile was because there was no synagogue. In order to have a synagogue, you had to have 10 Jewish men. Wasn't there. So for the majority of this church was Gentile. And you'll remember the people that he interacted with, Lydia, uh, the girl that was possessed by the spirit, and the jailer. This all happened, and you can read about that in Acts 16. And this was the same church that had partnered with Paul, and you read about that in 2 Corinthians. There was an, I found a quote from an old Greek literary critic. His name was Demetrius. 
Listen to what he wrote. Everyone reveals his own soul in his letters. In every other form of composition, it's possible to discern the writer's character, but in none so clearly as the epistolary. Basically, what he said was, when you write a letter to someone, you'll bear your soul. And that's what Paul did. In Philippians, you'll see in the opening part, it's very personal. The themes that begin to run through the entire book of partnership and joy, even suffering and encouragement, it runs throughout the book. And the reality is that he keeps pointing people back to Christ. And I want you to see that as we go through this. But what is more unique about the letter, if you will, is where he wrote it. He wrote it from prison. And I want you to understand that the mood of the letter is upbeat, but the man's in prison. There's only three ways in a prison, and the debate goes back and forth about which one it is. I think he was in a Roman prison in Rome. But the reality is that uh, there's only three ways out of a Roman prison. You're either found innocent and you're let go. You're found guilty of some lesser crime and you're either beaten to within an inch of your life or you're maimed or you're executed. That's it. Okay? And so here he is sitting in this Roman prison and he writes this letter full of joy and encouragement and it's remarkable um, so the, the the theme beyond this is as we'll march through it in in later times is fabulous but i want you to look at the opening message because what he begins to answer is how do you encourage suffering saints look at the first two verses paul and timothy servants of christ jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at Paul's other letters, he will put in there the term Apostle Paul. You'll notice that's missing. And I want you to understand that there's a reason for that. Paul is suffering for the gospel, and so are these people. He identifies them with them immediately, and I want you to grab hold of the love that he has for these people. He doesn't pull the apostle card out. There's a deep, deep love between Paul and this church. These two have suffered together. And I want you to notice the word that he used. Some of your translations will say servant. Some of them will say slave. I like the translation servant because in America, in English, that is not a good translation. I'm not saying it's not the right translation. I'm saying for our culture, it is a bad translation. You only have one mind bent when you use the word slave. One and one only. I'm just telling you. It's not the same thing. Okay? Servant is the word. And the word basically means one who gives himself to another's will. And in this case, it was Christ, was it not? Did he not say that? 
that he's given his will over to Christ. Now let me take you on a side trip really quickly because I need for you to understand the purity of the word servant. When someone slips the adjective in front of the word servant that says unwilling, or they slip the adjective in front of the word that says rebellious servant, you understand that you've nullified the object of the adjective, don't you? There is no such thing as an unwilling servant. You're just unwilling. There is no such thing as a rebellious servant. You're just a rebel. Paul, in the purity of the word, says that he's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's given himself to Christ, okay? And that's an action from an attitude within himself. But look how he goes on, and he begins to encourage the saints in Christ Jesus. The very first thing he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And now he begins to answer this question, how do you encourage suffering saints, okay? The very first thing you do is to remind them of who they are. Do you see that? Saints is a lofty term. And in fact, if you look at it, it's the same word, and it's tied, and it's just tweaked a little bit between saint, you know what the other word is? Holy. Holiness, who do you attribute that to? Do you not attribute it to God alone? It means separate, set apart, okay? And he calls these people out. He says, you're saints. You're set apart in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? He's encouraging them by reminding them who, he, uh, who they are. He didn't write to the Philippians. He wrote to the saints who happened to be in Philippi because they belonged to him. They were separated. They were consecrated to God in Christ Jesus, not by their doing. You realize that you don't earn sainthood, right? It was earned for you. And he said, you're saints in Christ Jesus turned away from the world. You need to understand that this is paramount in his encouragement for these people. It's paramount for our encouragements. It needs to come out. It needs to be believed. It needs to be said to those who are suffering and because it's easy to forget in light of suffering. You realize that torture, suffering, leads down one path. If you're going to be tortured by the enemy, they want you to lose hope. That's it. The minute you lose hope, you give in. And these people were suffering. And he reminds them, be encouraged. No matter your circumstances, listen to me, folks at the church, you're saints. That doesn't change. Remember that. The second way that Paul encourages the saints is in verses 3 through 8. Look at his prayer of thanksgiving. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because, listen closely, of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. And for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. What great encouragement Paul gives to these people as he bears his soul. Now he begins to tell tell them, this is how I'm praying for you. Again, this is the guy sitting in prison. Not thinking about himself, rather thinking about the church. And he's thankful. Why? Did you see it in verse 5? Because of their partnership in the gospel. Now, I'm not sure that I grasp this as much as I can or should. I'll try to bring it home for us because we kind of skip over this just a little bit. Do you realize what partnership in the gospel costs, at least for those at Philippi? I want you to understand that there's a gravity to this statement that they needed to hear. You and I get it mentally, but we've never experienced it. He says, first of all, he's he's encouraging them because of your partnership with the gospel. And I want you to understand when you partner with the gospel, in particular with Paul, you also partner with the consequences. Do you understand that Paul's sitting in prison and it's a short bridge for the people of Philippi to end up there too? Why? Because they're associated with the gospel. You understand that? You and I don't have a good grasp of that. But the only analogy I can think of is if Pastor Grant's up here preaching one day and the police bomb the door and say, you're coming with us, you're going to jail because you're preaching the gospel. That's my only analogy. We can't even imagine that, can we? But can I tell you that there are people such as James Coates, Henry Hildebrandt, and Arthur Pulowski that know what that means. Do you know who those men are? Those are preachers in Canada right now. They're being jailed because they're preaching the gospel. That's the northern border. Can it happen? Yes. Secondly, I want you to know, when you partner with the gospel, it marks you as outcasts. Let me show you. In Acts 16, it says, and when they had brought them, okay, to the magistrates, this is Paul and Silas, okay, they're in Philippi, they're establishing the church, this is Acts 16, then uh, these men are Jews, they're bringing them in front of the magistrate, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. Well, what were those customs? Well, back up in verse 17, this was a little girl that was possessed, and she was following Paul and and crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. There it was. You want to know what the custom was that they couldn't accept? There it was in verse 17. They're proclaiming the way of salvation. And at that point, they became outcasts in Philippi. You understand that when you partnered with Paul, you also partnered with the consequences, which means you're an outcast. These people at the church at Philippi were outcasts in this society. And that's where they were. They were also the ones being beaten and thrown into jail. And thirdly, when you partner with the gospel, there was a financial cost also. 
And they had gladly accepted it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we want you to know, brothers, and Paul is writing to the church at Corinth now about the grace that God uh, has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Philippi, okay. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Those were your churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, stop right there. Ponder that for a second. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, we love that. And their what? Extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their court, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. These people were broke because of the gospel. They were joy. Their hearts were full, but their pockets were empty. I want you to understand this was a severe test of affliction. And he said that they were in extreme poverty. And this is difficult. It's difficult for you and I to grab hold of this. But for them, after a long period of time, can I tell you it's exhausting and it's costly and it will wear you out. Physically, mentally, and spiritually to partner with the gospel. And the byproduct of this service of suffering without encouragement leads directly down the path of no hope. These are the people that are saying that they're wearing out, that they're tired. They need encouragement. But look what Paul wrote in verse 6. I'm sure of this, that he, meaning God himself, who began a good work in you. What was the good work? Partnering with the gospel. In you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Two things there I want you to see quickly, that he was going to complete what he started with them partnering in the gospel, but he was going to bring it to full fruition. The prize, the finish line, if you will, was the day of Christ, okay? He's saying be encouraged by that. Just a side note. People always say, there's no tomorrow. I don't know how many funerals I've preached. I always guarantee people two things. I preach your funeral, I'll guarantee him three things now. I don't want to preach your funeral. Number one, that um, if this person could come back and speak to you for two minutes, here's what they tell you. All that matters is Christ. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. And second of all, unless Jesus comes beforehand, you're not getting out of this alive. You're just not. But here's the thir- third thing I just figured out this week. When people say, oh, you're not guaranteed tomorrow, I disagree. You are guaranteed tomorrow. You are. There is a tomorrow. Now, where you spend it, 
It's a different story. There is a tomorrow. Okay? And this is what he's pointing them to. He says, for the day of Christ, that's tomorrow. But he's encouraging them. You need to encourage them. These people were exhausted. They were spent. But yet they partnered with the gospel. They invested. Partnered is the same word as investing. You realize that by just the sheer term of investing, you realize there's a cost involved, right? Whenever you use that word invest, it doesn't have to be monetary, but you've invested, you have given yourself to something. There's a cost involved. And he said, you've partnered with the right thing. We partner with a lot of things, don't we? We partner with uh, a, a financial portfolio. We'll, we'll partner with uh, a, a sporting activity. We'll part, partner with work. We'll invest in our family. We invest in good causes. We invest in politics. We invest in our opinions. Let me just tell you, you will always invest in your passion. Now the question is, what's your passion? On the day of Christ. Paul says... You've invested in the right thing, suffering Philippians. And on the day of Christ, God will bring that to completion when you stand before him. Verse 7, you see, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart. I can see Paul weeping, thinking about these people. In his imprisonment, they had partnered. There you go. There were already people suffering there. In the defense and confirmation of the gospel, look at Hebrews chapter 10. But I recall the former days. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being what? Partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Does that sound familiar? This was who they were. They partnered with the right thing and Paul is encouraging them. For the day of Christ, it was worth it. So not only did he encourage them by reminding them who they were and the fact that they had partnered with the right thing, but finally he encourages the saints in his prayer for abounding love. Look at verse 9. Again, he's spilling his heart about what he's praying for these people. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Same prayer, different aspect. And he says, for God is my witness, how I yearn to be with you in verse 8. And it is my prayer that your love may abound. And you need to stop right there. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? He's praying that their love may continue to grow, continue to abound. The word, when you look it up, is agape. Ring a bell with anyone? 1 John says God is what? Agape. All right? Uh, the, 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 for God so what? 
agape the world that he sent his only son. Romans 5.8, but God shows his agape for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This term is extremely important. This is God's love he's talking about. He's talking about as you continue to abound, as you continue to grow, as you continue to be more like Christ, more like God himself, then there's a, a result of that. Can I remind you that the cross was not a, not a demonstration of God's love. It is the demonstration of God's love. Do you see that? It's not a one and done. It is a one and done, but it's something that you pull forward that's always there. It's his demonstration. It's ongoing. It's his agape toward you and I. And he's saying, as you grow in this type of love, what happens from that? Well, if you look on down there, it says that you will approve what is excellent. We'll talk about that as we walk through Philippians. And so be pure and blameless, and there it is again, for the day of Christ. Keep your eye on the prize, Philippians. You encourage the saints when you say keep your eyes on the prize. So what does that look like? He says that you're filled with the fruit of righteousness. He's already told them you're saints, you've partnered wisely, but as your love grows, you become uh, full of, of love and more like Christ. And you're full of his righteousness at that point, a love that abounds. It's evident. You and I have this. You realize that, right? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Do you remember that? So that in him, we might become what? We're the righteousness of Christ. And he says over in 1 Corinthians, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That's who you are. And he's reminding them of that. Be encouraged, saints. Be encouraged, partners. Be encouraged, believers who are abounding in love for the day of Christ. Why the day of Christ? Why does he keep coming back to that? Why Christmas 2.0? That's what it is, isn't it? Can I tell you that the day of Christ is as much a part of the gospel as the virgin birth? The day of Christ is as much a part of the gospel as John 3.16, for God so agape the world that he gave his only son. Can I remind you that the day of Christ is just as much a part of what we believe as 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul wrote, For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The day of Christ is as much a part of the gospel as those core passages. You and I need to grab hold of that. The day of Christ, he is coming. There is a day that we can look forward to. The king will return. This is the day that the guy on the white horse shows up. This is the day whose his name is written on him all over him, faithful and true. 
This is the day that written on his robe and on his thigh, it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the day that the sheep are separated from the goats. This is the day that the wheats are separated from the, dead, from the tares. This is the day called victory. This is the day that he has his wrath poured out against his enemies. This is the day that salvation comes fully for his people. And what Joel predicted when he said, the Spirit of God will be poured out on his people and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Gone are the prophetic days when they says, repent because on this day God says, it's enough. That's the day of the Lord that you look forward to. God says, no more. This is the day that Christ will appear the second time, not to bear sin, but to bring judgment and the full salvation for those who put their trust in him. This is the day that the revelation talks about in verse 19, where the crowd of the saints are crying out, hallelujah, because they're saved. This is the day that you and I are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're not stuck at the other supper. There's two suppers there. You know that, right? One, you get to sit down and dine. The other one, you are dined upon. The birds will eat your flesh if you're not saved. This is that day that Paul says, fix your eyes on this. When is that day? I don't know. Here's my best answer. Either today or tomorrow. <laughs> and tomorrow, I'll give you the same answer. Either today or tomorrow. <coughs> Plan on it. Prepare for it. Live like it. Count on it. Be encouraged by it. Keep your eyes on it. That's what Paul says to him. So what about you and I? Why is this encouragement, if you will, so important to you and I? First of all, you and I need to remember one very important thing. You're a saint. And when I ask you, are you a saint? I pray that you say yes. You see, that word has been twisted around so much in our society. We've decided you're a saint by what you do. No. You're a saint by what has been done for you. Don't ever forget that. When I ask you, are you a saint? If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the answer is yes. I am a saint. I've been set apart. The second thing that you and I need to take away from this is you've partnered with the right thing. You have partnered with the right thing. Will it be costly? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. How do I know that? Because on the day of Christ, when you stand in front of him and he says, I see you partnered with the gospel, you'll be glad. Hopefully, that's what you've partnered with. And not a team or your passion, unless your passion is Christ. You've partnered with the right thing. And finally, you and I need to remember that we need to grow in God's love. I'm not talking about Valentine's Day. I'm not talking about bring it in. I love you. I'm talking about God's love. 
that he gave and showed toward you and I. And because of that, he's driving us toward purity and blamelessness to be more like him. Why? For the day of Christ, because there is a tomorrow. I told you to keep something in the back of your mind. Do you remember that? I told you to keep back in the back of your mind that there is a payday for paying attention. And on that day, you'll be glad that you knew, that you remembered, that you paid attention, that you had ears to hear and eyes to see the salvation of the Lord because on that day, it will pay off. Do you understand that? That's the prize. Remember that you're righteous in Christ. Remember that as you abound in God's love and become more like Christ and you partner with the gospel and that you remember that you're saints. At the day of Christ, verse 6. For the day of Christ, verse 10. You'll be glad on that day. Be encouraged. There is a tomorrow. It's called the day of Christ. Are you ready? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Pray that we be encouraged by your word because our hearts and our minds and our eyes are turned in so many different directions. And we've taken our eyes off the prize. The prize isn't here. The prize is with you. God, I pray that we would live like that, that our lives and our words would preach the gospel to those around us. And on the day of Christ, that you'd be honored and glorified by that. We'd ask that in Jesus' name. Let's stand and sing.
Your benediction for, benediction for the day is from Hebrews chapter 9, starting verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Go eagerly wait for Jesus. You're dismissed. <laughs>